You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. This morning, we're going to be talking about Satan's grand scheme, deception, and how he deceives us. Before I get started on that, I want to relay a story that I heard about a woman who lived in Arkansas. She loved to get up in the morning and go out on the lawn during the fall months and kind of brush the leaves aside like so. One morning she was doing that, and all of a sudden, Copperhead came out of that. Her comment was, man, the serpent almost bit me. See, it's real deceptive in Arkansas at that time of the year because the colors of autumn masquerade the color of the copperhead, and the copperhead could be slithering underneath all of that. And you can be out in your yard and all of a sudden get bitten. (laughs) I heard that illustration. I said, I think that'd be a good opener for me. (laughs) Some of the lures, some of the baits that he does are through deception. Before we get started, I wanted to find a few terms. First of all, deception. Okay. Deception is causing someone to accept truth or valid that which is false. And it's oftentimes accompanied by temptation, manipulation, and lies. Scheme is another word we're gonna look at this morning. A scheme is a large scale systematic plan for putting a particular idea into effect. It's to make devious plans to do something wrong or illegal. The word itself, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Scheme, I think of the the mob, you know, money laundering, something like that. The Apostle Paul, you know, we've been through Corinthians recently. You might be reminded that the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church that they weren't ignorant of the schemes of the devil. Brothers and sisters, we need to not be ignorant of those as well. There are certain schemes. First, his, his main schemes are lies, manipulation, and his temptations. But also, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. We're going to see that. Uh, sexual immorality. He likes to put thoughts into people, into our minds. The persecution of believers are some of his specific schemes that, that he uses. This morning, we're going to look, first of all, at the inception of deception. That means the beginning of it. It happened in the Garden of Eden, as we know, with with Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve had an idyllic environment. They had all their needs met. They were walking in sweet fellowship and harmony with God. They were under what is known as the Edenic Covenant. They were to obey God and follow him, and there was, it was grace before rules. The only law or prohibition was that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of that, you will die. Well, all was going good, but then along comes the copperhead. We're going to read about that familiar story in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you must not touch it or you will surely die. And then the serpent says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, Eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. What we have here is the beginning of the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It was the lust of the flesh because it was the food. Look, Satan first appeals to our appetite. He appealed to that. And then still connected to our appetite is the lust of the eyes. You ever see food and your mouth starts watering? Oh man, that looks good. And then the pride of life. See what happens here is that the first strategy, there's three of them that the serpent used in the garden was he sowed seeds of doubt and confusion. That's the first one. That's the foundation of his deception. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The, the serpent was crafty. Some of your translations might say cunning. I like that word. Cunning means he was devious, manipulative. I like the word slick. He was like a slick salesman. Why, if you were stuck in the middle of the ocean, he could convince you that you needed to buy a bottle of salt water to keep from dying of thirst. I mean, he was slick. He was a slick. After he sowed seeds of doubt in Eve's mind, he, it's the same strategy with us, then he can go to the next stage and actually challenge God's authority. We read here that Eve responded partly correctly here. She said, well, he didn't say we can't eat any of the trees. He just said the tree in the middle of the garden or the tree of the knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. And that if we eat of that, we'll surely die. But she added something that the Lord didn't say. He didn't say, do not touch it. He just said, do not eat it. And what we have here is the second strategy where the serpent challenges God's authority. This is the first bold lie in scripture. And I think what earned the evil one, the title of the father of lies. And you shall not surely die. No, you won't. And after challenging his authority, then that led to the next strategy. He made Eve feel like she was missing out on something. That's what Satan does. He makes us feel like we're missing out. If, you, if we follow him. He said, no, he, don't you know, girl, don't you know that he knows that if, when you eat of that, your eyes will be open. And you'll have that knowledge of good and evil just like him. He doesn't really care about you. He doesn't want, you, he doesn't want to share that power with you and that knowledge, that gnosis. We're going to be talking about that. He doesn't want to share that with you. So she ate of it. What was going on here? What was the temptation? I, always used, I grew up thinking the temptation was just temptation, but there's something behind it. It was the desire that it provoked. The desire. See, he made her covet wisdom or that knowledge. That word covet means an in, having intense desire for something. A desire that says within us, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Now, here shows really the craftiness of the evil one. He didn't come right out and say, I added some dialogue that he didn't have, but I think behind his motivation was that. He didn't come out and say, I'll just chunk this God, don't follow him anymore. He didn't make, he didn't, he was very crafty. And we read a book in, in the book club called Rewire Your Heart by David Bowden. And he had an interesting idea that this might not have been overt disobedience. It was disobedience. But Satan could have made it sound like, you know, hey, it couldn't hurt for you to have a little knowledge of good and evil, could it? Come on, girl. Come on. Eve could have thought to herself, you know what? Maybe it couldn't hurt. I can have a, some knowledge of good and evil and I can help out my Lord. Well, here's the thing, though. This was a lack of trust, a lack of belief. A lack of trust, a lack of belief. She didn't trust God in his provision. This was unbelief. Bowden, in his book, I keep referring to him, but it's an interesting book. He referred to this as the first scheme of the evil one, the self-salvation. The first instance in scripture of salvation by works attempted. Like I can add something to what God has done. I can add something to it. 
It's not, God can't provide all my needs. I, I have to add something to it. And what happened? Well, she made an idol out of that tree. She coveted that wisdom. And she didn't trust God. She, she, and, and she got her husband involved in it too. And, you know, some people blame Eve about this, but the Bible actually puts the blame on Adam. <laughs> because Adam, rather than being a good spiritual leader, he went right along with it. He didn't challenge anything. Romans calls it the sin, the sin of Adam here. He was crafty. But we know what happened. There was judgment. God judged the man and the woman, and uh, the man by the sweat of his brow and work, and the woman by she'll bear chain, her pain rather in childbirth. And then he also judged the serpent to forever crawl on its belly. But also, in Genesis 3.15, a very pertinent passage for today, Genesis 3.15 says that, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is because of his deception. Enmity is a word uh, which means conflict. I will put conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What we have set up here is the conflict of the ages between the seed of the woman, of the Messiah, and the seed of the evil one, the serpent. We're going to see that a little later on, too, when we go to the book of Revelation. God judged them, and he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. You know, really, his judgment was tempered with mercy, though. Because think of it, if Adam and Eve had been allowed to stay in the garden in the condition of their lostness and sin and had eaten of the tree of life, they would have been forever condemned in their sin and eternally lost. But God drove them out of the garden so that he might begin to deal with the sons of Adam and bring about salvation and redemption. We're going to see a little later how false teachers in the first century took this narrative in Genesis and actually polluted it and tried to make God into a liar. But it's interesting, when we get into the rest of the Old Testament, we don't see a whole lot of the evil one. Oh, he's there. He's there. But it's, kind of, it's the masking of deception, and the masking of the deceiver. He's not as clearly revealed. Now, we, we see one example that's most prominent is Job, Job 1 and 2. You might recall... Job was the accuser of the brethren. He accused the people of God for not obeying. And the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? Because he was holy and just and righteous. He said, oh yeah, but you know, the reason he's following after you, he's on easy street. Well, you do something to him and take away something, uh, he'll turn, he'll turn on you. And God allowed the evil one to inflict pain and suffering. We know from the book of Job what happened. We've got to remember something though. It was in a limited sphere. It's kind of like a dog. It's, it's kind of like a good dog trainer. You ever seen a, God tra- a good dog trainer has a dog on a leash? And I don't care how big that dog is. Who's in control? The dog trainer with that leash. No, you don't. No, you don't. Let you go here, well, here, but no, draw him back in. You see, he had limited control. There's only one sovereign, and that's God who has control. Then there's several other passages. One is in 1 Chronicles 21, and also 2 Samuel 24, 1, where Satan deceives David to take a census, which wasn't uh, something that God wanted are really permitted, but he did, and God judged him for it. Then there's Ezekiel 28, which many think, refer, we're not looking at this verse here specifically, but basically that has to do with, with the fall of Lucifer and uh, what happened back in the beginning. And there are a few other passages, but those are the main, main, ones, main ones that we have. Why, do, why is that? Well, in the stage of progressive revelation, the people of God 
weren't really prepared for this. Think, think about it. They believed in the, in the spiritual realm. They believed in that. They, they believed that uh, it was life after and that kind of thing. But for them to believe there was this battle between two opposing kingdoms and such an imposing mighty figure as the evil one. It was a little much for them at that time. Think about it. They didn't have the spiritual weapons we have today. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't poured out until Pentecost. And then the power of God was released. See, they didn't have that power of the Holy Spirit to deal with Satan and his schemes like we have today. But when we get to the New Testament, it's all different. We have an explosion of this deceiver in his deception. And we're going to see how it's his grand scheme. I, you know, John Piper is one of my favorite theologians, and he was asked, if there's one passage in the Bible that really describes Satan in his work and function in the world today, what would it be? He said, without reservation, Revelation 12, 9. Before we get to Revelation, it's interesting, we've taken a journey, haven't we? We've been in Genesis, now we're in Revelation. Okay, the book of Revelation was a genuine prophecy, but it was also a specialized kind of prophecy known as apocalyptic literature. Let me explain what that means. It was a form of literature written to the people of God between the post-exile period on into the first century A.D. after Christ to encourage people that were suffering and were being persecuted. And Revelation was one of those. That, that God was going to break into history and, and do something victoriously. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is where that happens. But here in Revelation 12, 9, he describes the evil one in his function. Now keep in mind that in apocalyptic literature, it has a lot of symbols. It has a lot of images and visions. Okay? Uh, animals, not, not wholly, but partly, especially dragons, snakes, crocodiles, uh, those were symbols of the forces of evil against, against God and his people. And we see this in this, that passage in Revelation 12, 9. Actually, it says here, Revelation, the, the great, great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Now, most of your translations say it leads the whole world astray or deceives. And there are three words here, the prominent words in the Bible for the evil one. There's about 22 different names for him in the scripture. Here, three of the most prominent ones are the dragon, the ancient serpent, we've already seen that because he's a deceiver of mankind, and he's the devil. That's the word which means slanderer or accuser. He accuses the brethren. You know, the people at that time were well aware of that because at that time in the courts, oftentimes uh, people were falsely accused. But he, that's what Satan means. It means slanderer or accuser. Or Satan, which means adversary. He's, he's an adversary to us, opposition to God and the things of God. And he leads the whole world astray or deceives the whole world. You see, that, here's the explosion. That's what it's about. It's about Satan deceiving us. But what is his main function in the world? He said, well, his main function is deceive, to deceive you and I, to draw us away from Christ. You know, why? Because he hates the gospel. Why? Because it's the gospel that sets captives free from the bondage of him. And to, to really be frank, he wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can before the end. He's here to deceive the whole world. But this explosion takes place 
at the birth of the Messiah. And we're going to see that in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Now, there are two heavenly visions here, two signs. One is the, the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis, and one is the seed of the serpent. See, it's starting to come together. From Revelation 12 to Revelation 22, that conflict reemerges until the end when finally God culminates it all in the new heavens and the new earth. But here in Revelation 12, we have two heavenly visions. The first one, and rather than, you know, there's so much symbolic language here, rather than read the whole thing and then describe it again, I'm just going to have you look at it, and I'm going to narrate. Basically, there's a great and wondrous sign, the woman, she's clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Okay, this is the light, this is most commentators, and I'm one of them who believes that this is the messianic community from which Israel came forth. She was, because it says here in the next verse that she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. You see, the Messiah was to come out of Israel, the Messianic community. And then another sign appeared, the seed of the serpent. Verses, we, we see that in verses four and five. Then another sign an enormous red dragon, another description, detailed description. He's red. Red means that he's a murderer and a destroyer. And he has seven heads. That means he, authority, intelligence, keen insight, but he doesn't have wisdom. In addition, he has ten horns, which means he's powerful, and seven crowns, which means he has sway over political authority. His tail swept a third of the stars and flung them to the earth. And then the dragon stood in front of the woman. Folks, what we're privileged to see here is spiritual warfare, okay? This is behind-the-scenes stuff of what's happening. Because, see, it's coming to a head, that conflict that started in Genesis. Here it is. Man, the seed of the woman's about to be born, and he wants to be there to devour the seed. He stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. What was going on at this time on the earth? Think about it. Herod had been incited and angry. The evil one. We see spiritual warfare here, but God works through arms and legs of people. He was working through Herod. What was Herod doing? Herod was incited and angry because how dare the wise men, wise men not the Magi, not come back and tell him where, where he was. So he could go worship him. He said, no, but he wanted to kill him. And then what did he do? He goes and slays innocent children. This is, what, this is what's going on here behind the scenes. He's waiting there. But the, he was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. But the child, this was the child who will rule all nations with a rod of iron a male child who will rule all nations. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. I mean, th this is really a picture of the whole incarnation. What happened? Jesus was born. He lived, died. And really, this is the, this is the, de the feet of Satan. This is the crushing of the serpent's head. We're going to see that a little more clearly in a moment. Well, now Satan can't, he can't... Uh, do anything about the Messiah. You know, this was the beginning of the end, as we're going to see in a moment. Now his focus is going to be on the people of God. In, in, in verse 6, we read, The woman who is the people of God then fled into the desert to a place of, prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Again, this is a symbol here. Think back to the Old Testament. Where did the Hebrews go? They went to the desert or to the wilderness. And there they were protected, nurtured, and sustained by God on their way to the promised land. In the same way, you see, this is saying that 
the woman went to the desert. To the, the wilderness experience is our experience here in this world as we're on our way to the promised land of heaven. And while we're here, we endure and we do battle. We have God to sustain and protect us. Well, we've had the explosion of deception. Now we're going to see the demise of the deceiver and his deception in Revelation 12, 7 through 12. But keep in mind, this is, this is after Jesus is enthroned. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And then again, the verse we, we, I read earlier in the beginning, the great dragon was hurled down. We're going to discover what that means. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray or deceives the whole world. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. What is this war in heaven? Theologians differ about the timing of this. Most think this isn't the initial, right here is not speaking of the initial fall. Because what we had just read is Jesus was caught up and snatched up and enthroned. And then the war in heaven happened. This has to do with the work of the cross. You know, it might, this most likely points back to that great fall. But it has to do with, with the work of the cross, with what he did on the cross. The, you know, when the disciples came to the Lord after they were on the mission field, they, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. See, he was hurled down at the cross. He was defeated there. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This has to do with the work of the cross, with redemption. Colossians 2, 14 puts it this way. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This was triumphant. This was, you can sense the war was over. And this, this whole thing is really kind of a process, this demise. Think about it. When he, he was, as I said earlier, when, when he was born, that was the beginning of the end because Satan, he was enthroned. It was the beginning of the demise was actually there. But then with the work of Christ, he came and he lived a sinless life. Do you know that he, uh, he we know he went into the, he was baptized and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. How about that, to be tempted? Be led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. He was led by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. What did he have to do there? To defeat the works of the devil. And what did he do there? He conquered the evil one, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It happened. This was a process. You know, I want us to, to, to realize, though, that uh, we, as, we as believers, we're, we're part of that demise of him as we participate in our victorious life of faith. Revelation 12, 10 through 11. After certain Satan was hurled down, after he was cast down because of the work of the cross, we read there, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, see, we've seen that back in, all the way back in Job, one of the earliest books in the Bible. That was one of the jobs of, of Satan at that time. But before the cross, the evil one, the adversary, could accuse us. But he's been cast down now. 
He who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. We overcame him. We could say we're part of this. We overcame him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, they were really persecuted then. Many of them died for the faith. We have it kind of soft today, but they were persecuted. Therefore rejoice, you, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But see, Satan was cast out of there. Now he's going to the earth. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. There may be differences of opinion about the timing of some of these things, but I, I believe this has to do with the, the, the whole end time, that, that Satan knows that his, his time is short and that he's, that he's a defeated foe, and he desires to deceive us and cause us not to follow, follow after Christ. Now... I want to say this, though, as we talk. How do we, it appears to be maybe a logical conflict. Satan was triumphed over at the cross. Yet at the same time, 1 Peter 5, 8 says that he's a roaring lion seeking to devour who he may. He's seeking to devour us. First of all, I want to talk about, a ro- you know, really, the devil as a roaring lion is more like the, the lion in the Wizard of Oz. He needs courage, courage. We know that when a lion roars in the animal kingdom, that's basically scared. Let me tell you, Satan's scared of you because he knows that you have Christ and that you have the power of God resident within you. If we only knew how Satan really felt, He's trying to, uh, trying, trying to deceive us. He's a roaring lion. And he, he can do some, some bad. Yes, he can. But remember, God's in control. God, God's in control of him. Then, as we look further here, uh, the way we describe this apparent conflict is that, yeah, he's a roaring lion, but he's been triumphed over, he's been defeated, is through an historical illustration. June 6th of this year, we, we commemorated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day was a decisive conflict. That's when our troops landed on the shores of Normandy and they took the beach. Historians tell us for all practical purposes, the war was over there. It was over. We defeated Germany. That was D-Day. But at the same time, for a while, there were still struggles. There were still casualties of war until the eventual V-Day, or the official end of the, the war, in 1945. Between that time period, there were struggles and casualties. Well, that's kind of where we are. You see, our D-Day was the defeat of the enemy at the cross. He, He was triumphed over. But between now, in the end, we have struggles. We have to deal with pain and, and, and with evil until RV day is the end of time with the coming of Christ. But Satan can deceive us today, especially as we, if we believe his lies and his manipulations. What are some of the ways? First of all, he deceives unbelievers. He, he deceives the whole world from responding to him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, that, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of believers so that, that they may not see the, the light of, of the gospel, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's kind of like the parable of the sower. You know, there's seed that's cast out, 
Unbelievers are kind of like the hard ground. They're hardened to the gospel and the things of God, and that seed falls on the ground. And what happens? The birds come and just pluck it right up. It can't penetrate. And the God of this age has blinded their eyes. We need to be careful about it. There are a lot of theologies today that give too much power to the evil one. It's not like Star Wars. <laughs> okay, yeah, like in Star Wars, you know, you got the light. You know, what did uh, Darth Vader say to, to Luke? Luke, come to the dark side. So much more powerful. And sometimes the dark winds, you see, and sometimes the light winds. And it's like this constant tug of war type of thing going on. No, no, no. There's only one sovereign. Anything that, that happens, God allows it to happen. Even the bad things, we don't understand why, but there's a purpose in it. Remember, it's like the dog on a leash. Satan can't do anything that the, the trainer doesn't allow dog Satan to do. And then he also deceives through accusation and condemnation. We've already learned that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down because our sins are covered. He can't come before, before God anymore and accuse us. Praise God, he can't do that anymore. But he still tries to do that. He still tries to accuse us. One of his main modes of deception today, when we fall away a little bit, you know, there's a temptation to, to go and feel, oh my goodness, I feel so, it's okay to feel guilty, but we need to come to God. I'll explain that in a moment when that happens. Instead of, but the, Satan's minions and demons will have us feel like, oh man, why don't you even call yourself a Christian? Why don't you just go ahead and deal with it? Go on and go on full blown into your flesh, man, you hypocrite. Man, there's no condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus. But we need to remember that we are sinners. 1 John 1, 9 puts it this way. If we claim to be without sin, speaking of deception, we deceive ourselves. I'm not doing Zechariah 3. Uh, didn't have time for that. I'm doing 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. We need to clean up our lives every day and come before him in humility and in confession in our relationship with him. Then... He also deceives, not only through, through, through that means, but through distraction. I've read a book called uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. In that book, uh, Screwtape was a senior demon. And his job was to apprentice or mentor his, his nephew, Wormwood, into how to see, deceive and distract the people of God in an English accent, it said, oh, my dear boy, Wormwood, what you need to do is distract them with whatever means necessary. Even yesterday's advertisements. Satan attempts to distract us from the things of God, you see. And it could be anything. Uh, Mark 4:19 talks again, again in the parable of the sawyer. But the thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life. We get caught up in worry. We get distracted by that. The deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, if I could just win the lotto. I don't know how that is. <laughs> or if I could just uh, get, that, get that big raise. We need to trust God that, he, that he's going to take care of us. Remember what Paul said. He said that, that money is a root of all sorts of evil and it's been a snare to many. It's not the answer. And then most anything else. And other desires, the, the, as we've already talked about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Uh, in the pride of life. And then there's false teaching. Today I think one of the false teachings uh, that's very prevalent is this health and wealth gospel that if you receive Christ, man, it's a guarantee of, uh, you know, of money and happiness and health and wealth. But there are blessings though. There are blessings. But it's a false gospel to say that's it. During this time, there were many uh, false teachings. During the time of Christ and the apostles, there were already 22 different false teachings or heresies. 
in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, but I'm afraid, he reverts back to Genesis here, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, his slickness, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He was talking here about legalism. There was a, in Corinthians, there was a, a temptation to go after the law as a means of salvation. One, but one of the other primary heresies and false teachings was Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that we have a divine soul and it's trapped inside this body and it seeks release through this knowledge or gnosis. Sounds a lot like a scheme that Satan began in, in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? And that it seeks to be released. Second John 7 says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And such persons is the deceiver in the Antichrist. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They don't acknowledge that. See, because they believe flesh was evil, Christ couldn't be flesh. That's evil. Well, you could walk up to him, and, and there was a word in Greek known as doicism. He seems to be there, but he's not. You could walk up to him and say, hi, Jesus, and walk right through him because he was a phantom wasn't really real, but he was real. One of the things that has survived, and even to our present day, is an idea that was prevalent in the first century, is that this divine soul, they, they claim that we're, we're all divine, we're all, it's part of the New Age movement, that we're part of, part, that we're part of some, of God, a piece of God, and uh, it's, it's, it's the God of the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> in the Gnostic Gospels, that we have a spark of the divine within us. I even heard this at a training I went to a while back. It's still around, folks. I get trainings every couple of years for, my, for the license I get. And the, <laughs> this guy was saying, you know, it's, you people don't like that old-time religion. But it's not about religion. It's about you. Don't you see you have that spark within you? So you have to fan the flame of the spark of God so you can become more of a God yourself. That's the God of the Da Vinci Code. This is the New Age Jesus. This is the, the Christ consciousness Jesus, the false teaching that Dan Brown tried to, tried to uh, teach in his book, The Da Vinci Code. He tried to say it was hi history as well, but that was recanted later. Not only through false teaching, but also through the media. You know, uh, we can be deceived through the media. Media can be both positive and negative, though, can it? Sometimes, like in the news, the news, it's not, it's more what, what the, it's not what they say, sometimes it's what they don't say, and it can skew our thinking about things. Um, what about, have you seen that advertisement on Oprah on the internet? There's an advertisement, she used to show her moving and crying. Now it's like, we need to pray for Oprah. And you click on it, and it's a weight loss program. It's, a, it's what, what in the internet people call clickbait. That's deceptive, isn't it? Don't they realize, oh, they click on that, oh, Oprah lost 40, I can too. They don't realize she's done it three times. See? But they click on it and give their credit card number. They just lost $75. It's deception, you see. It's deception. I wanted to say too about, about the false teaching is that they took the, the Gnostics took the story of the Garden of Eden and, and they tried to make God into the li a liar because they say, well, Adam and Eve didn't really die there. But they did, they died spiritually. And then later on they died physically. They believed that when they left the garden, that because they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they had this divine spark within them. But that's a lie. Television also tells lies, right? Tell lie vision. Again, there's some good things on, on, on television, but you got, we got to be careful with what we put into our minds and hearts, especially with our kids, don't we? How about this? You ever seen the ancient aliens? It's in its 13th season, guys. Why is that? You wonder why? Because alien sales, man. It's big box office stuff. But the, the problem with it is that, is that aliens are presented 
as our saviors, our messiahs. You see, it's kind of like the, the, the false belief in evolution, you know, that, that they, they've evolved millions of years, you see, and they're here to help us, to guide us, and to show us the way. It's a false messiahism, you see, that, that is before us today. I've studied this issue quite a bit because I'm a science fiction buff, and one of the things I've found, especially among Christian authors, is that they find that What's happening is, 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 is deception. They're trying to, de, to deceive us into believing in aliens. People have these so-called uh, abduction experiences, but really they're hypnotized and they think they're going on a spaceship, but they've been hypnotized to believe that. Why, why would they use spaceships today? Because that's the form people believe. And so people have been deceived, you see, to believe that it's real. Do you know in August of this year, there's going to be, uh, I think a million and a half people have signed a petition to demand from the federal government what we know about aliens. We demand it. And they are gonna march on Area 51 and storm the gates of it. People, see, people are deceived, you see. People have been deceived by this. Uh, they even say that, hey, they seeded us here. They, you know, they're our creators. They planted life here. It's a deception today. Valet went before Spielberg, and uh, he was a consultant for the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And uh, this guy by the name of Valet, he's a scientist who came to believe in a different conclusion. It, there's, it's not extraterrestrials. It's more like interdimensional beings and all that kind of thing who go in and out of space and time and manipulate it and they're here to deceive us. And even though he's not a Christian, he came to many of the same conclusions that Christians. I encourage you to read a book called The Alien Intrusion by Gary Bates. It talks a lot about that. What happened? He spoke to Spielberg and Spielberg said, well, yeah. uh, thank you, Jacques, but uh, you know what? I think we're gonna go with aliens because that's what the people expect. And we're gonna give them aliens, by golly. So what's happened in our culture? This proliferation in the media, would it, would, would it be unlike Satan for this to be a scheme today? One of his schemes of deception to deceive people? It's, an, it's, it's kind of discouraging in a way. They say 60% of people in churches believe in extraterrestrials. Well, there may be life out there, folks, but that's not the issue, it's how they, how they appear and how they present themselves in, in ancient aliens, you know, like they're these saviors of mankind. It's false teaching. Folks, we need to remember that Satan's strategy is to sow seeds of doubt and confusion. He's still doing that today. He challenges God's authority. Don't we see that in our culture today and in our media? Just, we, we're becoming the enemy. It's, it's challenging God's authority and to create a feeling of missing out like he did with Eve. Like, now don't follow after God. Follow after the things of this world. Folks, let us not be deceived. We need to do some things that I want to share with some action steps. The first thing is we need to discern, discern truth from error. We need to establish a foundation in the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them or set them apart in your word for your word is truth. And then we need to seek the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the, some people see the anointing as some kind of like thing, you know, or uh, miraculous deliverance or something like that. But you know, really in the Bible, the anointing has to do with, with knowledge, with understanding truth. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the, if you're a Christian, you have the anointing upon you, on your life that can decipher truth from error. My wife, when she was a young Christian, says that she was, approached by a cult called the way. And because she was immersed in the word of God and through the anointing and the inside of the Holy Spirit, she was able to walk away from the way and go the way, the truth, the life. We need to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 12, 10 through 12. We're gonna focus on 6, 10 through 12. Um, it says, 
We need to, to seek the Lord, put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes and his deceptions. For our struggle is not with powers, and, uh, for our struggle is not against rather flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Folks, we need to remember it's a fight for freedom, not just for us, but for others. To set captives free from the deception. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Not only that, we need to finally seek godly counsel. Proverbs 15, 22 says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Need to run things by a mature believer, especially if you don't fully understand, but especially, I mean, even if you don't, I mean, even if you do understand, run it by them anyway, so you won't fall into some kind of error. You say, I didn't think about that. Let's not be deceived. Folks, let's realize that we need to make the Bible as our plumb line of truth and righteousness and seek the anointing of the Holy Spirit and to put on the whole armor of God and to seek godly counsel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is truth and that it's liberating and it's the only thing that really sets us free. And Lord, help us not to, to be deceived by the enemy, to seek the things of this world, to be deceived to think there's something more out there than you. Help us, oh God, to follow you as the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, you are the one. You are the one who has defeated the deceiver. Let us not walk in deception, but rather walk in the truth that you have before us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.